This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. You might be streaming via rrr.org.au. Maybe you're listening via radio on demand. Anyway, this is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty, being everything in the seas, the oceans, the coastline and estuaries. My name's Bron Burton. I'm Hilary McNevin. Hi, Hilary. I'm Dr. Beach. Hi, Dr. Beach. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. It's been a long time since I we've been on the show know, together. No, we haven't been on together. I have been listening when you've been on. It's been a while. I was here a couple of months ago with Bron. Yes, indeed. So I'm happy to be back. How are you both? I'm well. I'm great. Great. Really I'm, I'm, I'm still celebrating. What would it's you still right. be celebrating, Bron? Your presence. Uh, uh, your presence last week. <laughs> well, what was that last very, week? I, I heard know. Tim say that. It was the Community Cup. And if you're sick of hearing about the Community Cup, this is probably the last day. I figure we can kind of give ourselves one week of on-air celebration about it and then we can kind of get back to the norm. I'll keep gloating probably while you can. Well, we, we, but there's been a bit of discussion about this, that fine line between bask and gloat. We think, we, mm. we think we're on the, on the, the bask side of the line. No, okay. no negativity against the wonderful rock dogs, and it was um, it was great. To, uh, I think it's about length of time, isn't it? Really, like yeah, like you've got to give it a full stop at some point. Because if you keep going, that's when it turns into something. Length that of time. Should we call that fetch? <laughs> 
don't know. <laughs> but I will say that it was five years since we had a win and um, certain members of the Rock Dog fraternity uh, did not hold back in letting us know that on many occasions and so that's contributing to the fact that we're still celebrating and I don't know if you managed to catch Livewire last night. It was a, a full celebration show of uh, the Megahertz almighty win last week. Anyway, I won't say too much more about that, but uh, yeah, go Megahertz. What a, what a great day. The last thing I would like to say is I just hope Reckling got a lot of money out of it. They did. Good. Do we know how much? All I've seen officially is over $100,000 cool. and about 10,000 people, well which is fairly consistent. I don't know what the actual figures are for both of those um, It certainly things. was fun. Yeah. It, not working scoreboard. Yeah. Notwithstanding, that what am I trying that, to say here? The scoreboard wasn't you know working, what? but that didn't seem I spoke, I spoke to a couple of people who were there about that. And because uh, if you're wondering what we're talking about, the scoreboard just was non-existent. It was just blank for the entire game. And I think maybe in the third quarter, the letter S suddenly appeared and we kind of wondered what that was about. But, uh, yeah, the, the, there was no scoreboard. And so if you can imagine sort of two hours watching football, having no idea what the score was, trying to listen to the commentary. But, uh, of course, we knew exactly what the score was because the minute that we knew there was no scoreboard, we started keeping track of absolutely every goal and every behind that went through. So, uh, But, anyway, talking to a couple of people in the crowd, they said it was really interesting because it actually forced people to focus on the game. I don't know about uh, that. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not, not in was, your camp, not where Dr Beach. <laughs> and to talk to each other and say, do you know what the score is? And people were just... It was actually the, the score was the focus of conversation for the entire length of the afternoon, which isn't usually the case because... Of course, we know that people are there for all kinds of reasons. And mm. for most people, well, not most, but for some people, the football is a, is a component of the Community Cup, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on as well. Hey, Vinny, very funny story. Just indulge me for one more minute with the Community <laughs> Cup. We were sitting behind the goals at the other end. Ness, as always, friend of ours, brought along a little table with lots of food on it, nice bits of things. And she had a big bowl of hummus right in the middle. Ball was kicked, went through, it was a point, landed smack bang in the middle of the hummus and the hummus exploded everywhere. There was a whole lot of people. If this had been on Channel 7, there would have been replayed the whole time. Did we they were, have we to were wash picking, the ball? We were picking bits of hummus out of our hair for the rest of the game. That's fantastic. Yeah, whose goal was it? Who's got, well, that was a point. It was behind. Oh. All right. I think it was Which for us. I think, I think we were... It was a megahertz. Yeah, I think it was a megahertz point. That's great. Anyway, very, very funny. <laughs> And Ness, um, yeah, do continue to bring hummus. Yeah. <laughs> Just be careful where you place it. Yeah. That's it. Hey, Nerida, can I put you on the mic? Can I put you on the spot? Nerida's panelling for us today. Hello. And, hello. and, of course, you're part of the integral lineup of Livewire. Thank you. Was yes. it a fun show last night? It was. Well, yes, it was very footy. Well, but it was also Polly P's birthday, so... Yeah. yeah. Happy birthday, Polly P. Actually, yeah, I've got happy a, birthday, dude. I've got a uh, track which I'm going to play for you in just a moment and, um, and for a couple of other people... In the megahertz as well. Okay, so we're going to move on. Thank you, Tim, of course, for Vital Bits. Um, wonderful as always. And it was good to hear Nirvana twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right, let's do a quick, quick, a quick, um, a, uh, a quick uh, summary of what the show's about today. We're going to be joining Dr. Alicia Belgrove from Deakin University uh, in a few minutes. Uh, yeah, Alicia's on the blower from fair, sunny Warrnambool talking to us about blue carbon and a paper she has just had recently published in um, Ecological Society of America, I think it's called, and also about AMSA, which is coming up 
this week, so the Australian Marine Science Association get-together. Yeah, it's in Fun Geelong. Party. It's in Geelong. Mm. It's in Geelong. There's a public event, which we're going to talk about in a minute as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to have Captain Windshift on the horn just for a minute or two, keeping us up to date with what's happening in the small boating world, in particular the results of the Women's Skippers' Cup. Cool. A few weeks ago. Excellent. And then Hillary. Oysters. The humble oyster. You say oyster? Oyster. I say oyster. Oyster. And always this oyster. You know, let's pull the whole thing off. Well, there's this line in let's call the whole thing off where where they sing, you say oysters, I say oysters. Never heard anyone call them an oyster. I think that was them (laughs) grasping at straws (laughs) for what will we put in next? Potato, potato. That's, you know. Maybe it was a thing in the time. Well, maybe it was a thing in the time and maybe Mm. you were fancy if you said oyster. No, oyster. O-Y, oi. (laughs) You know. (laughs) I know. Ah, Nerida. O-E-S-T-E-R, perhaps. Ah. Maybe. Could be. Could be an old spelling. Yeah. But yes, we're going to talk about... It's the time to be eating Pacific oysters, particularly at the moment. And so we're just going to have a chat about... How lovely they are. Mm. And if you, yeah, as we always say, vegetarians don't feel free to turn off for a few minutes. Or, or just go make a cup of tea. Go make a cup of tea. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I adore them. I yeah. could eat them every day. Yes. I so, had six during the week. I know, and you text me about it while I was chained <laughs> to a desk. And then she texted me afterwards how much she'd enjoyed them. <laughs> I hated you for a moment there. <laughs> Threw the phone across the room, screaming. <laughs> Our friendship is long and enduring, Hillary. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's become unconditional, hasn't it? That's it. Especially with taunts yeah. like that. Yes. And then to close the show, Rex Hunter is coming in. Rex is our uh, our um, in-house maritime archaeologist. He's shipwrecks. He's going to be talking about um, Port Phillip Bay shipwrecks or ships that caught fire during the Gold Rush era and oh, wow. ended up as Rex. Yeah. Nice one. Whole little specialty area of shipwrecks that I had no idea about. I have no idea. I can't wait to hear that hmm. one too. We can play some thematically appropriate music for that as well. Dr Beach, you've got the weather in front of you. I am looking at the weather. Um, today, 9 to 15. And by the way, what a, what a dull kind of wintry day it was yesterday. And I think it's going to be another one today. I don't know, kind of flat. Perhaps it was because Friday night was way too big. It's because it's winter. Um, it's because it's winter, Dr Beach. I supposed to have those so. days. And I normally like winter. Um, today, 9 degrees to 15 degrees. Mostly cloudy, slight 20% chance of drizzle in the morning and afternoon. More likely over eastern burbs. Uh, light winds. Tomorrow, 8 degrees to 14 degrees. Partly cloudy, blah, blah, blah. For the rest of the week, it's a bit like that. Um, high tide, Port Phillip heads... Uh, was at 8.13 this morning, so we've just done high tide, so it's going to be low tide at 1.17pm at Port Phillip Heads, for those who are interested in those things. Thank you, Dr Beach. Blah, blah, blah means kind of 13, 14 in the odd shower, in case you're wondering. Yeah, but everyone looks at their phones and things. They don't need the weather for the whole week from us (laughs) on a Sunday morning. I'm going to do a couple of... (laughs) I don't know. I like listening to the weather report. I always... Cam always does it with Edith. He always kind of basically does the weather again and um I there you go listen. cam does it on edit we don't need to do it <laughs> well that's assuming come on dr beach you're a scientist here you're assuming it's the same audience listening to both shows at exactly the same time i, I might be i might be i might be <laughs> a couple of quick uh, quick plugs one, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Dr Beach. This week, Wednesday, July the 1st, is uh, International Polar Cake Day. Cool. 
Polychaetes. I didn't know that we had um, an international Polychaete Day. Neither did I. And this, uh, John Ford sent this to us. Thank you, John. It's um, from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. I don't know whether they just thought, you know what, Polychaetes, they don't get enough profile. They Let's certainly Let's declare don't. an international Polychaete Day. I remember there was a guy who was doing a PhD in the same institution I did mine in, and he was working on worms, and he used to always say, worms is where it's at. <laughs> And he, well, worked, he would, wouldn't he? He, he would, yeah. yeah. And he wore shorts all the time. He had this oh, thing about short wearing shorts guy. the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, nice bloke, though. Zoologists are a bit like that. They have this thing about wearing shorts all the time. This was indeed in a department long of zoology. Um, That's scary. That, that I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think back too far yeah, about okay. these socks while I can. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, polychaetes are a class of worm in the Annelida. So the Annelida is a phylum. You know, we have lots of different animals. Um, anyway, yeah. They're worms, and they've got lots of different segments, and from those segments we have kitty coming off, and kitty are little protrusions, and they mm. can use them for walking, and interspersed in those, they also have little fleshy bits which they breathe with, so they are gills. But examples you might have seen, uh, for example, well, you're going to talk about oysters. I know. Sometimes when you get an oyster or you get a mussel, yeah. you get a little bit of white calcareous kind of limey yes. stuff on the outside in the shape of a worm and that is indeed the house that a polychaete worm called Galliolaria lives in and sometimes if you saw one of those muscles live you could yes. see this little fleshy red bit come out the top and that's the worm inside but it builds that calcareous shell but there are lots of other so a lot of them do build those shells they mm-hmm. have corals all sorts of the place but many many live in the sand and the sediment um, or on oyster shells, is that a On oyster shells as well, yeah, that was the illusion yeah. I was trying to get to before. Mm. Um, but I did recently see them on mussels yeah. that we were eating. Um, sandworms that people pump for, for fishing, mm. they're polychaete worms. And why do we have an international polychaete day? I don't know, ask the Smithsonian. Is there, is there something that they need to... Well, they are, they are really, really important in turning over sediment. Sure. We um, were talking about this on even this program a little while ago, yep. churning over materials in the sediment. Okay. And, you know, lots of good jobs. No, they it's do. But yes. there's heaps of them out there, lots of diversity. Some of them we might put on the end of a fishing hook, um, but there are, yeah, many, many others doing fine Thank jobs you. for us all. Ecosystem services yes. is what we would call it. Oh. Speaking of doing a fine job, Dr Beach, that was magnificent. I completely put you on the spot there, but thank you for giving profile to the polychaete worm. That's a pleasure. A <laughs> couple of quick ones too. I wanted to give a big plug to the Australian Marine Conservation Society. They're running a campaign to protect the snubfin dolphin. If you want to look uh, under the definition of cute in the uh, in the di- any dictionary, you'll find a picture of a snubfin dolphin because they are absolutely, you know, of course I'm being... Uh, you know, purely going on aesthetics here. <clears throat> They're very cute-looking dolphins. They, they, they uh, have a very kind of sweet snub nose. What about the polychaete worms? I mean, this is why we're I having an international day of polychaete worms. Agree, People Dr. still Beach. go for, you know, dolphins, <laughs> whales, all of these things, and they forget about the polychaete worms all and right. the like. Who are so the worker bees of the ocean, by the sounds of things? <laughs> One could describe them as that, Hillary, yes. Charismatic. Pick who's not the scientist here. Charismatic <laughs> megafauna. I will say about the snubfin dolphin, they are under threat. So we know that for a fact. So we'll, we'll look at it from this um, with this lens. Uh, Government of Western Australia have declared some plans for a, a planned marine park. It's the Yaruru uh, uh, Nagulagun. Um, I hope I got that pronunciation what right. The, what was that again? Roebuck Bay. Thank you, Dr Beach. Uh, Yaruru Nagulagun. Right. You got that one now? Yeah. Okay. 
has no fully protected sanctuary zone and if this park goes ahead it will become the only marine park in Western Australia without a sanctuary zone. This particular area is particularly important to the snubfin dolphins. If you want to lend your support to this particular campaign uh, we will put a link on our Facebook page to the Australian Marine Conservation Society and uh, particularly regarding this campaign and the work that they're planning on doing. The last thing I'll mention very quickly and then we're going to hear some music is a public forum coming up for the Australian Marine Sciences Association. The theme of it is Estuaries to Oceans, What Are the Issues? It's taking place Monday 6th of July from 6 till 8pm. You do need to get a ticket and uh, we've, we've spoken about this one at length over the last couple of weeks. It's at Costa Hall, Deakin University, 1 Gap Street, Geelong and uh, with a line-up, great panel line-up, Professor Emma Johnston from the University of New South Wales, Dr Tim O'Hara from Museum Victoria, Dr Emma Jackson from Central Queensland University, Dr Beth Fulton from CSIRO and also Dr Peter Nichols from CSIRO. So there'll be all sorts of stuff going on there. There's an exhibition as well with marine photography uh, and uh, we've already got a couple of links to that on our Facebook page. So you can check that one out as well. In these times of impending climate change, we're worried about carbon in the atmosphere, worried about carbon in the oceans, all sorts of places. And one of the things about carbon is that it does get captured. It gets built up in trees, well, it gets consumed into trees, trees keep it. But there's also many other environments on Earth where carbon is captured naturally. And as we want to, you know, as we pump more carbon into the atmosphere by digging up coal, burning it, driving our cars around, all of that, what many of us would like to do is to capture carbon, bring it back down out of the atmosphere. And that's why we grow trees, you know, all of that kind of thing. That's not why we go trees. Anyway, there's a lot of different ways of capturing carbon. And Alicia Belgrove, who is a marine scientist working at Deakin University at Warrnambool, has just published a paper called Comparison of Marine Macrophytes for Their Contributions to Blue Carbon Sequestration. Alicia, we've got you on the phone. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you going? Good. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> I'm Dr Beach. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. Hi, Alicia, it's Bron. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Good, Bron. Hey, quick one to start with. So uh, Dr Beach mentioned uh, macroalgae for uh, the benefit of our listeners who maybe are not aware of the difference between macro and microalgae and even what, al- what kind of algae are we talking about here? Uh, essentially we're talking about seaweeds. What people commonly know as seaweeds is what we've been looking at. So marine, so marine macrophytes. Uh, yes. So, well, actually we've been looking at um, seaweeds as well as other um, higher plants, so seagrasses, salt marshes, um, or, um, mangroves is what we looked at in our research. So things that we might normally consider to be plants, I mean, although we know that seaweeds are not true plants, um, in the kind of coastal environment, can you tell us, I mentioned the word blue carbon in the title for this paper, which, by the way, congratulations on getting it out in the um, Ecological Society of America. What is blue carbon? Well, as you talked about in the introduction, um, all, photosynthetic, oh, sorry, all photosynthetic organisms can capture carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and um, lock it up in their biomass that they produce. So we've known about the idea of, I guess, what's now referred to as green carbon for a long time. So we've got to protect our rainforests because they you know, lock up carbon. Well, the idea of blue carbon is that plants in our uh, aquatic environments can also lock up that carbon for hundreds to millennial, hundreds of years to millennia. Okay, so we know that we understand that, like, you know, 
trees can lock up an enormous amount of carbon and indeed when we dig up coal and burn it we are releasing all that carbon that those trees have captured over the millennia. How much do we know about the carbon that can be captured by seaweeds, that is the amount of photosynthesis that they do and the amount of carbon that they fix in the process of photosynthesis and kind of build into their own fleshy bodies? Uh, not enough is the short answer. But essentially um, what we're realising, I guess, relatively recently is that seagrasses, salt marshes and mangroves have... and these are habitats that the plants themselves can capture the, um, the carbon and, and, in, and lock it up in, through photosynthesis. But they also accrete um, organic matter into their sediments into, and so they lock it up in the root systems. And so these habitats have been known to be really important blue carbon habitats and can actually sequester carbon at 40 times um, faster than terrestrial systems, so terrestrial forests. But... The seaweeds don't grow in the same way in that they don't have root systems that can accumulate those sediments. So they have, you know, attachment organs known as holdfasts and they don't, they, it, for most species, they don't tend to uh, accumulate sediments associated with that. But we know that there's enormous biomass of seaweeds out there in our oceans. They grow incredibly quickly. So they really have really high rates of primary product. So they're, they're locking up carbon, uh, a lot of carbon in short term, um, in, in biomass over short time scales. But what we haven't really understood is how um, much potential they have to do that over long time periods. And so um, higher plants that have got cellular cell walls and lignin in their tissues and, you know, woody material uh, have been you know, known to be able to lock up that carbon for long times because these um, molecules are difficult to break down. So right. they, the, the carbon gets locked up for long times. But it's been thought that seaweeds, um, because they don't have high proportions of cellulose and they don't have lignin, um, and, you know, so they don't have these woody tissues, they were thought to not contribute um, very significantly to blue carbon stores because they thought to break down pretty quickly. But essentially what we did was said, okay, well, they don't have the same sort of cell wall structure as higher plants, uh, so terrestrial plants and, and these aquatic well, macrophytes, but they do have a whole lot of other um, complex cell wall structures which differ amongst different kinds of seaweed. So we started to look at, well, how much does that actually influence their ability to um, lock up that carbon over long time terms? How did you do these experiments? Um, or measurements, used, I should say. Yeah, we used uh, a process known as TGA, or thermogravimetric analysis, and essentially what it does is it, um, it gets the, the tissue of whatever species we're interested in, and it um, progressively ramps up the temperature that it exposes it to, and so the higher the temp, and, and then the carbon um, is, is burnt off at, at different temperatures, depending on how it's um, locked up within the within the tissues. So, at, at progressively higher temperatures, um, you know, more and more carbon gets burnt off. So, the, the higher the temperature at which the carbon is emitted from the tissues, or and the um, the more uh, refractory that is, and and so, yeah, the, the it's an indication that it'll get locked up for longer periods. Cool. So you you looked at a few different seaweeds, about a dozen, just from a quick glance at this paper. Were they representatives yeah. of ones that we have in southern Australia, for example? 
Yes, they were all collected from um, uh, down at Waterville. So on our shores down at Waterville, we collected the samples down here. And so we had uh, a number of different seaweeds, as you said, from different uh, taxonomic groups as, I guess, representatives of different kinds of cell wall structure that we were interested in. So you had some red and ones, some brown ones, some green ones. Some red, some green, some browns, and, and from different groups within, from different um, families within those, you know, broad groups. And... Um, then we had some seagrasses and some salt marsh plants and some mangrove leaves. And we looked at both above ground and below ground tissues or attachment organs and um, and photosynthetic uh, tissues. So for the seagrasses and, and salt marshes, we um, had root tissues compared to root and rhizome tissues compared to leaves, for example. And for the seaweeds, we had the, the holdfast tissue compared to the, the blade, which is the, the leafy bit that's doing the photosynthesis photosynthesizing out in the water column. Nice. Did any one of these species stand out as being, like, you know, fantastic for just holding carbon for a very long time? So it was interesting. The, the different species had different sorts of... Um, cell wall makeup as I said and so and and these are broadly linked to the reds greens and browns so you've you've got with seaweeds the cell wall structure is basically a um a fibrous um, matrix so and those fibers can be made from cellulose or, or other um uh, compounds and then they're also bound up within that if you've got a I guess a, a gelatinous matrix which is made up of different things compared to different sorts of seaweeds and then there's all sorts of other bits and bobs impregnated within them and that that is partly to give strength flexibility resistance to herbivory and all these sorts of things so yeah. um but they're they're the, the way those cell walls are made up differs amongst red greens and brown algae and, and within different orders and families within those groups. Right. So what we found was that um, uh, fucoidin, which is a compound which is in uh, brown algae, yep. is highly refractory. So And also agar, which is in lots of different red algal species, yep. um, showed really high uh, refractory um, characteristics. Whereas, you know, a lot of the compounds, as we thought, were, were you know, labile, so they're burning off pretty quickly. But a number of these different species had um, compounds good, good stuff that for capturing carbon. to, you know, retain for a long period of time. Basically. Nice. And I understand you're going to present this work at AMSA. Can you just talk, just in the one or two minutes we have left, talk about AMSA, yep. which is at Geelong this week? Yes, so kicks off on uh, Saturday with a workshop for early career researchers, um, looking about uh, you know what they what they should know, what they need to know, what they didn't know maybe about marine science, and give some tips for them. Yeah. Um, and then there's a number of other workshops on the Sunday, and then the main program starts uh, Monday through to Thursday. So Deakin University is host at the Waterfront Campus is hosting uh, the Australian Marine Science Association, and it's looking to be a fantastic program. We've got a public forum on Monday evening um, where we've got a range of scientific experts who will be uh, debating issues of, in marine science and the public are invited. They can buy tickets online and it should be a fantastic event. We're hosting a um, seaweed photographic exhibition uh, which will also be viewable at the, at the public forum. And there's also a photographic competition uh, amongst delegates that's, that will also be uh, available for viewing there as well. Sounds fun in beautiful Geelong. 
Yes, beautiful dong. So again, on Monday night, is the public forum that people can go along to and that they should probably get tickets if they really want to get a spot there because I'm sure it's going to be popular. Yeah. Alicia, thank yeah, you very much. They're not expensive. I can't remember the exact price. I think it was 8 or $10 or something like that. So. Okay, nice. Alicia, thank you very much for taking time out. I know you're busy at home cooking pancakes with children and all those sorts of things <laughs> on a Sunday morning. <laughs> um, we'll talk to you yeah. soon and have fun at no AMSA. Worries. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. That was Dr Alicia Belgrove from Deakin University at Warrnambool talking about Blue Carbon and AMSA, which is coming up at Geelong yes. next week. Next week. And the forum's not tomorrow, it's the following Monday. That's right. Yep. But uh, those details are all on our Facebook page. Speaking of which, a couple of quick things um, before we listen to some station announcements. Uh, a message from um, Fiona who says, um, thanks, Triple R, my favourite show is Radio Marinara. I listen every Sunday. She has a fish name, so we'll talk more about fish names in the weeks to come because, of course, Radiothon's not that far away, <laughs> just when we're getting over the community car. Radiothon's are a matter of weeks away. Uh, also from Reuben, uh, he, he mentioned that the plural of octopus is octopodes. There must have been some discussion about this a couple of weeks ago. So uh, thanks for that, Reuben. There was, I think, with Dr. Surf, yeah. Yeah. So um, octopodes. And me. Yes, although octopuses is more common and occasionally people say octopi. And uh, lastly, message from Terry Allen, our dive reporter. She says, just to let everybody know, spider crabs are still at Blegari Marina. They can be seen just to the left um, of the tee on snorkel or diving. So if you go along the Blegari Marina, the, the tee, I think she's talking about the shape of the pier, just to the left. What a fantastic school holiday activity. Go and check out the spider crabs. Yes. Go and look Ooh. at them. There's been a lot of discussion in social media about whether they're protected or not. We're going to actually pick that up in the next couple of weeks. But just go and look at them. Hmm. Yeah, apparently they taste like mud. Don't eat them. Don't eat them. I think legally you can, but why would you? And uh, yes, and we're now crossing to Captain Winshift. Well, our very own Captain Winshift from the Port Melbourne Yacht Club. How are you going, Captain? Very good. Thank you, Dr. Beach. Bron, that was a great uh, station announcement there. <laughs> it's very sweet, isn't it? I, I, really do, I still think that that child's probably... No, almost ready for retirement now. We've been playing that. <laughs> I think as long as this program's existed. Hey, Captain. How are you going? I, I understand. Last time we spoke to you, you were about to head off in the is it the women's skippers regatta? Oh, it's been a while since I've spoken to you. Yes, we it did. Is. We um, you were we crewing for someone. For the, I was having a lot of fun being a crew for once, and um, I obviously chose the right woman to skipper for me because we won. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Has the, has the trophy oh, the, gone straight to the pool room? The trophy has gone straight to the pool room. I'm not quite sure what uh, Cecile's done with it, but it was a very beautiful replica of a, um, a channel marker. Oh, how appropriate. Yeah, yeah, it was great. We have had a really good time. It was an awesome regatta, actually. Uh, I hope they do it again next year. Large, large amount of winnings you got, you took home? Oh, oh, look, you know, just massive, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so what, what else is happening in your world? You're getting out today? How's the weather looking? Any good regattas? Uh, today's weather on Port Phillip Bay from a sailor's point of view, as opposed to the normal weather report, um, we're looking at having a north-northwesterly, sort of 10 knots roughly, and then during the day that'll back through the west and come in as a south-southwesterly of similar strength at about 10 knots. I doubt very much with all this overcast that we'll see any sea breeze effect. So it'll be pretty light, um, but a good day for a sail, pretty much like last weekend, actually. It was a lot of people out training last weekend. Mm. Nice one. Um, any regattas mm. coming up for you? Not through winter. We're all practising furiously. However, there are various people around the bay 
in major practice mode before heading over to the Northern Hemisphere for various world championships and things. Um, at Port Melbourne Yacht Club, there's a, a couple of teams that are heading over for the Hobie Cat World Championships at Lake Garda, lucky things, in Italy, which will be very beautiful in July. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's up north yeah. near Lake Como and all of that, is it? Yeah, um, extraordinarily beautiful lake. And it's a great big, long, narrow lake that has two really distinct winds through the day. One, uh, one in the morning, it funnels down in one direction, and in the afternoon, it blasts back in the other direction. Keeps everybody on their toes. What a wonderful image you're painting. God, I want to go to that. <laughs> It's um, it's a spectacularly beautiful place, actually. Yeah. I'm very jealous. Anything but else I'll you want to stuck here working? Sorry, go on, Pete. Anything else you want to um, fill us in on before we're, we're kind of behind time? So I'm trying to wrap up oh, here okay. a little bit. I'm, I'm getting <laughs> getting wind up noises there. I, I'm okay, getting wind well, up noises yeah. from Nerida. But <laughs> is there anything else that you know? Nerida's going me more. <laughs> You're getting wind up noises from me now, Doctor Beach. <laughs> I'm back up vocal and okay, simple we'll percussion. Keep it short. Everybody's out there training, <laughs> um, getting looking forward to the season, which will be starting pretty much in September in Port Phillip Bay. Um, so everybody's training, getting ready for next season. Cool. Thanks, Captain. We'll talk to you soon. Not a problem. Bye. Bye. That was Captain Winshift from the Port Melbourne Yacht Club. Hey, we also had a call from Dr Surf uh, giving a very quick surf report. He said, overall today, good, not great for anywhere. Uh, Torquay is getting bigger, but experience would come in handy. So thank you for that, Dr Surf. We'll uh, have you back on the program in the next couple of weeks. Hillary, <laughs> we're talking from about uh, oysters. Yes, we love oysters. Yeah, Pacific included, hence you know a little bit of that track. Yeah, no, I liked that little that segue. But basically, well, I guess how this came about, me being here today, was you and I talking about about what to talk about. Seafood in winter is something I'm quite passionate about because fish love cooler water and they work harder and the meat, say, in seafood becomes a bit leaner. I'm talking about fish rather than crustaceans. And then oysters, Pacific oysters in particular, are just stunning at this time of year. And we were just talking off air about seasonality, weren't we, Dr Beach? Uh, Yes. And basically this is the season from about April to September. Pacifics are in season. And aren't when you hear about not wanting not eating oysters in sort of january february it's because they're spawning right pacifics in particular so if you actually that oysters valentine's day thing if you're going to do it you know people sort of i know i'm going down a weird track but anyway people sort of talk about having all these beautiful oysters and stuff like that in middle of february well and around and christmas time and around well. christmas time too big seafood feasts yeah. and it's about asking... Rock oysters are more prevalent and in season at that time of year. Pacifics are not. Mm. And I think it's... And then there are also... The other type of oyster we could talk about in this context is triploid oysters, which are actually sterile. So they are available all year round. What this is about, really, about when to eat oysters, is about talking to your fishmonger and where they're from. And I wouldn't... I'd either ask to try one or um, wouldn't actually choose a Pacific oyster through the summer months... I'd actually let them spawn. People who farm them might be cursing me at the moment. But it's about conversation, working out where where they come from and the cooler waters. Rock oysters are in season from about September to March and in abundance then. They're from New South Wales, though, so Mm. it's about depending what you like. Yes. And um, basically, Pacifics at the moment are beautiful and perfect and wonderful and just right for 
cool weather. So I think people sort of have an idea that seafood has to be in hot weather and we have to have barbecues and we have to grill and that kind of stuff. But Maybe, yeah. yeah. But not. It, it's not the case. We've mentioned Pacific oysters and rock oysters. One yes. of the commonly seen oysters are Coffin Bay oysters. Where do they fit into this? They're um, far, well, South Australian and they're Pacific. So Pacific rock oysters are a native to Australia. Pacifics were introduced in the late 40s, 1940s from Japan. Mm-hmm. So they Coffin Bay oysters are Pacific oysters. It's okay. just they're grown in Coffin Bay, which yes. is in South yeah, Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I get that, but I just didn't know which ones. Yeah, they were. so really, um, Pacific oysters are not grown in New South Wales predominantly. It's nearly all rock oysters up there. And you will find from South Australia and Tasmania mainly Pacific oysters. So yes. So what's to what's a good thing to look out for if you're going and purchasing an oyster? Other than asking the fishmonger if you can have a taste, they probably yeah. charge you. I'm guessing they probably would. Yeah, and a bit dollar or something like that. A lot of I've yeah. noticed a lot of places do oyster shots too, which is basically just you pay a dollar, you get an oyster and, and down yes. hatch. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing to look for, okay, you can do one of two things. I don't like buying shucked oysters. I buy them unshucked. And there's only one, and I usually do my seafood shopping at the Queen Vic Market. I live in Carlton, I'm in a city person. There's one, the seafood and oyster spot. They have a little separate counter where there's a guy behind there shucking to order. Yep. So if you don't want to go home and um, I'm sorry if I, I don't know if I was supposed to plug them or not. I wasn't. It was just that's the only shop there that does it. So <laughs> if that's what you're looking for, I, well, but you just plug that's them twice where you go. Hooray! <laughs> Oops, sorry everyone. No, no, no. Keep anyway, going. but. Um, you can actually get him to shuck them for you right there and then yep. because also the thing about eating oysters is don't have them rinsed. So often if you have this tray of um, oysters in front of you in a shop, then they look a bit dry mm. and they look like they're just sitting in a shell, not in water. Mm. Unless you've got your own supply of seawater at home. Yeah. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's rinsing them in fresh water, which just kills them. Kills the whole As thing and cutting the little... Um, What's the word? Sorry, it's escaped me. You know, underneath, like, and they turn them, they cut them, they turn them, they rinse them. Oh, That's yeah. just ruining a good natural oyster. Yeah. If you go to a restaurant and order a, um, half a dozen oysters and they come out detached from the shell and looking like they're rinsed, tasting like they're rinsed or they've been turned, yeah. no. No. Don't, you just want them to be opened and put down on the plate. So when you go to the market... If you can, and if you've got time. Some people don't have time, so I get that, but you ask him to do a dozen oysters for you, shuck them, and then come back later and pick them up, whatever okay. you need to do. But it's about it's about the freshness of them and not mucking around with them. In 30 seconds, oh, do you prefer to have them raw? Yes, I prefer natural. What's something that's really lovely, in addition, of course, there's red, um, red wine vinegar and lemon juice. Finger limes, na- native oh, yeah. finger limes that look like little pieces of caviar, or but it's just lime pulp. Gee, it's beautiful. And there's a couple, there's market stalls that sell finger limes now too. They're becoming more and more common. Can you get them at the Vic Market? Yes, you can. Excellent. Thank you, Hilary. My pleasure. I hope I made sense then. Yeah. I just tried to... Definitely. Thank you. We're not, go- we're not going to go down the road of the uh, Oysters Kill Patrick, which of course was a bit of a staple through the 1970s. Or Mornay. <laughs> or Mornay. Oh, oh, yeah. Why? I just made everyone look I sick. I know. <laughs> it's like the apricot chicken era. It's like some things are just best left. I've heard the... that's coming back. Oh, no. I've heard. Yeah. No. Rex Hunter, yeah. Good, good morning. Welcome. Oh, good Good morning. Good to be here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, nice segue into um, gold uh, ship fires in Portfell Bay during the uh, 1850s. Now, I have to admit, when you said you wanted to talk about this this week, this was a whole new subject area for me. So, yeah, tell us about it. So, ships in Port Phillip Bay in the 1850s, in the middle of the Gold Rush era, catching fire. 
Yeah, yes, uh, uh, not all spontaneous combustion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what, what's the story? It sounds very interesting. Well, the thing was uh, Melbourne was very, very quiet for the, say, from 1841 through to 1851, before, just before the gold rush, there was only like 511, I think, international ship arrivals. And the following 10 years, uh, uh, it was tenfold increase to about 5,000 and something international vessels arriving. And... Uh, with that, people wanting to go to the gold fields, um, oversupply of uh, goods and goods and services. Uh, there was spontaneous fires all through the um, 1850s. It's an amazing image. All those ships anchored in Port Phillip Bay, particularly up in Hobson's Bay. Yes. Too. I mean, this end and around Williamstown, it must have just been bristling with. There masts. was hundreds, hundreds of vessels anchored in uh, Port Phillip Bay, especially Hobson's Bay, during the um, 1850s, because. Any one time, that, you know, it could be hundreds. If you look, go through the old Arguses and all that, there's a list, shipping lists and who was important. It's just... Imagine, know, what Port, imagine what Port Melbourne was like, people oh. coming off and going to the pubs and, you know, been on ship for a long time. Yeah. And, oh. <laughs> Feeling ready a bit to, lusty. Ready to, ready to cut loose. <laughs> and they were used for all kinds of things, weren't they? Because Melbourne was buckling under under all of the busyness. Because yeah. they were used for jails too, weren't they? Uh, yeah, there's hulks off um, Williamstown... Uh, there's some old sailing ships they converted into prison hulks, and they uh, two ended up in uh, up Wimpsand near the uh, power station now, and one ended up as a actually like a freak show in North America where it burnt. Oh, it was sank in a storm. Ah, oh, and yeah, none of this is good, of course, because we're talking about lives lost. Yeah. <laughs> so far, no, there was no lives lost. Oh, okay. They, the ships just caught fire, and everyone jumped off. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's usually uh, like middle of the night, ideal time to start a fire in a ship. Is, um, and, uh, you know, wake up in the morning and there's the ship burning away uh, and the fire brigades sort of trying to put it out and generally they, they'd end up scuttling the vessel. So how do these ships catch fire? Is it, I mean, obviously by the conventional method but and, <laughs> and accidents and so on, did they not, were there not sort of sufficient systems in place to put the fires out? Well, there was... Virtually, well, being surrounded by water, there was a virtually no chance if the ship was at anchor for putting it out. But they did increase, uh, you know, firefighting systems like pumps and all that. But once it got going, because you know, full of um, flammable cargo, there was timber, there was uh, alcohol, there was everything. But, do we know much about the history and the details of many of these fires? So, for example, I can imagine people coming out from elsewhere and wanting to spend a lot of time up in the goldfields. And if their ship is destroyed and they can't get back, then that might be a good thing for some people. So do you think many of these fires were set deliberately? Oh, definitely. There's definitely uh, uh, arson involved. But the, um, like if, if you were, a, say, a merchant seaman and you wanted to jump ship to go to the goldfields to go mining gold, uh, well, they were making, like, on average, a week's wages in one day. Yeah. They burn, your, burn your ship. Burn your ship. <laughs> and then, then what happened? Does that give you automatic well, the thing is, passage into the... Like, you're able to stay? Well, the thing is, uh, once the ship was destroyed, uh, they you couldn't sail back, so that means you had that you'd be paid off and you get your discharge as well. And that way you could go up to the goldfields because it was actually... Um, the trove made a... Uh, made a law that you couldn't, if you were in service as, a, you know, someone's assistant or whatever, or you're a merchant seaman, you couldn't get a licence to dig for gold. Right. Without your discharge papers. <laughs> so many of the... How much is preserved? How much can we still find in the mud of Hobson's Bay? In the, uh, well, I found, Bay? I found a couple of sites there. I found um, a couple in the St Kilda Bank. There's the uh, remnants of two, the results. 
that was but that was sort of a bit after that was 1866. But there's another site we found called the Marilla, and that she burnt in 1859. So they refloated, but there's still evidence on the bottom. We found uh, timber and got it analysed. It turned out to be uh, white oak from the Marilla, and there's it's quite amazing that there's still it's still a footprint. Of these sites, yeah. And I'd imagine because there were so many ships and presumably quite a few fires or quite a number of fires that there's many wrecks which can't even be identified. I mean, the, were the records that good of the, the boats coming, the ships coming in and the oh, ships yeah, leaving? Oh, no, yeah, no, like the Melbourne Argus in the age, there used to be a list of shipping arrivals and departures and it's, uh, yeah, it was, everything was a big story as well. So especially a fire, it was, you know, go for pages and pages. All the <laughs> <laughs> And I think probably a question that maybe a lot of people are asking and wondering, and certainly in my mind, so we're talking about gold rush era. Yep. Have we got treasure on the bottom of Port Phillip Bay we don't know about? Oh, well, <laughs> oh there is a... I'm amazed you didn't say no <laughs> first up. Is there a possibility that well, there's yes. gold out in Port Phillip Bay? Oh, yes. He <laughs> knows. He's just not telling us. <laughs> He's, he's blushing at the moment. He's, he's, got, he's, got, a, he's got a secret. <laughs> it's the colour. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, a ship called the Winchester that burnt in 18, uh, 1853 off Queenslift, and that had a cargo of 600 gold sovereigns that went down with the vessel when she uh, caught fire and burnt to have the they, Have they been found? No, never. <gasps> really? Queenslift's wow. going to be busy today. <laughs> Well, as a matter of fact, we were there yesterday out with a side scan zone and mowing the lawn. Okay, and you didn't find anything? Uh, I don't know. I can't say. You're right. <laughs> this is fascinating. It's a whole part of Melbourne history I didn't know about. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of them, the majority were actually American, North American built vessels and owned. And the thing was, there was an oversupply, such an oversupply of materials that um, even even the, uh, I think the captains and agents were involved, involved as well, because if you can't sell your goods. You arrive with thousands of pounds worth of, of goods, and you can't sell them. Well, <laughs> so are you planning to go out there and continue to uh, to mow the lawn, as it were, and look for more of this potential oh, yeah. lost treasure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got our real parts of the Caribbean happening here, right here in Port Phillip Bay. Uh, we just You're our answer to Johnny Depp. <laughs> it's the history more than anything. Yeah, <laughs> but Fasc- no, it's fascinating history. And yeah, there was twelve vessels burnt and scuttled in Port Phillip. Port Phillip between 1851 and 1860, so a 10-year period, there, there was 12. If you compare that with New South Wales, there's only three. Gosh. Right. Three vessels burnt. So it's phenomenal. We've, we've done really well as far as ship fires go. <laughs> <laughs> so what's coming up for you in the next six weeks or so? Uh, we're going uh, going back to um, check out some anomalies we found yesterday, uh, some lines, some interesting lines. Um, and then we've got, you know, any number of sites to, to look for as well. So if we, if it turns out to be a site, we'll um, we will uh, obviously tell Heritage Victoria, we're good friends with them, and then uh, do some um, survey work, and then move on to the next project. Fantastic. So we'll have you back on the program in the next four to six weeks, <laughs> and, and we want an update. If you don't see me, and my. <laughs> You know I've found some money. Living <laughs> <laughs> in diamonds on a private island somewhere. <laughs> yeah. He's pay, rocking up to Woolworths with a gold sovereign. <laughs> <laughs>
and a pirate on your shoulder <laughs> and an eye patch. We want the full picture. <laughs> thanks, Rex. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Rex, I've always Rex Hunter, our uh, our maritime archaeologist extraordinaire. Thank you, Dr. Beach. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Nerida. Thank you uh, to Dr. Alicia Belgrove too. We've put those details about the public forum for AMSA on our Facebook page. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you, Bron. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.